Hello and welcome to this lock-in at the Crate and Crowbar. With me, Marsh the Fast Davis and him, Graham the Furious Smith. Hello. Hello, Graham. I um I, I love you for doing this terrible thing to yourself with me. <laughs> I've always I've always held you as a dear friend, but I feel like what we've achieved today has brought us that much closer. A sort of Thelma and Louise moment, really. <laughs> I feel like there were other people in the car when we started. That's the thing. And oh, they've they, all fallen out. They, yeah, they, they jumped out while the car was in motion and rolled dramatically to a halt as we careened over the side of the cliff and exploded. In our souped-up neon green Honda Civic, no <laughs> doubt. And yet, you know, can you really call anyone a friend until you've blown yourself up in a giant cinematic bin <laughs> <laughs> so just to be clear what we have done uh is we've made a pact to watch all of the fast and the furious movies um and the reason why we did actually why did we do this why would we ever do this it started by us watching better franchises like we started off watching the Bourne films and the mission impossible films i don't know how the fast saga became the next on our list <laughs> i think i was i think i was tricked into it like i mean i feel um i'd heard from other people who i used to respect that the fast <laughs> films uh, had sort of become mission impossible basically now that they'd they might have started off as these like crummy micro-budget crime films about shit cars and the arseholes <laughs> to drive them. But then they become, like, over time, these ludicrous action spectacles that were actually unironically worth watching. And that's not true. That's not, not in any way true, <laughs> as it turns out. These, these are empty films in which, um, in which the expensive set pieces exist without any kind of peril or purpose and are housed within narratives that are incoherent and artless. And... Um, <laughs> That's just, you know, <laughs> that's what's waiting for us across this 10-movie, excoriating, agonizing experience. <laughs> well, let, let's let's start by talking a little bit about our, our histories with the series or whether we had any history with the series. Had you seen any Fast and the Furious film before starting on this journey? No, no. Had you? Uh, I had seen a little bit of Tokyo Drift on television one time. And that wasn't enough to stop you? <laughs> I, I, I turned it off quite quickly. Um, but like you, I'd heard that, you know, the later films get good. And, and, and everyone spoke mockingly, but then also sincerely about how they had become films about, you know, a sense of family among the characters. And so I assumed that there must be, you know, charming actors in mm. them and that they would be otherwise you know facile and shallow action movies but i like dumb action fair yeah. like you know i'm absolutely okay with that i so i i kind of i kind of want to at least establish that up front of the, these should be movies i like uh, yeah. and yet i don't. <laughs> I don't yeah yeah i think that's the thing that's uh difficult about it is because i i, I think one of the things would be interesting to explore across the course of uh dunking on these films <laughs> relentlessly will be why they are so much worse than otherwise superficially similar nonsense action spectacles like the mission impossible series um but we'll, we'll get into that and in fact just to just for anybody who's wondering why we're not talking about video games today the gaming podcast, as explained in the last uh, episode of the Crate and Crowbar, has now moved to a month—sorry, uh, a monthly format, a fortnightly <laughs> format. And in the off weeks, we're doing these sort of single-topic lock-ins that might focus on a single subject. Could be gaming-related, could be an exhaustive catalogue of the worst, most despicable, meritless film franchise that has ever existed. 
Um, so, um, you know, start as, as you don't mean to go on. Start with a, with a big mi- fucking mistake. That's what they say, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> well, we can pretend that you started with that, uh, the Green Knight chat, you know, the, oh, yeah. the, the three of you had, which was, you know, drawing from your academic experience in medieval literature and very well informed and dealing with this really interesting piece of historic historic poetry <laughs> uh, yeah, in many know. ways <laughs> the natural continuation of that is yes. the fast franchise <laughs> yes exactly should we just dig into the first film i think yeah. i think we'll get to some of the kind of big themes that i want to talk to you about as mm. we go through but um Let's, let's just start. So the the, uh, the inaugural film, The Fast and the Furious, as it was called, uh, in 2001, uh, directed by Rob Cohen, written by a bunch of screenwriters, one of whom, David Ayer, also wrote Training Day and then directed the bad Suicide Squad film. And uh, it focuses on our hero, uh, unexpectedly called Brian. Um, <laughs> Brian's a cop and much like uh, how James Bond got earmarked for the job in Casino Royale by being very good at poker Brian is is really really good at being a douchebag piece of shit uh, with a love of crap looking vehicles so he's the he's the natural choice to sort of go undercover with this gang of um, petrol heads drag racing petrol heads with the hope of busting open this ring of automobile hijackers who may or may not be led by the charismatic Beef homunculus, uh, which is Dominic Toretto played by and played well actually by Vin Diesel. Um, and what follows is basically exactly the same plot uh, as Point Break, uh, but with drag racing instead of surfing. Point Accelerate, if you will. Um, that's that's a really good joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, it's uh, it's not it's not a great film. Uh, at one point, Brian. Uh, which, uh, you know, eats a sandwich. And one of the other characters says, is this guy sandwich crazy or what? <laughs> and uh, I think that's actually probably the high point of the film's script. So um, what, what did you what did you make of this little cinematic gem? Graham? Well, I mean, I related to that moment. I have myself been sandwich crazy many times <laughs> in my life when we used to go to Time in Bath to oh, get yeah. a, a, a roast, <laughs> a roast sub. Oh, I, I, love, was... I love that, that lady with the... Um... With the, with the jowls who used to dig dig her big beefy hands into the, the huge pit of Stilton and without gloves and just crumble it, <laughs> crumble it all over your baguette. Not sorry, into your baguette, just all over it. She liked us. She would give us extra. That was nice. Mm. I her. So, yeah, I related to that moment. Um, this film is terrible. It's terrible in a, in a way that I think it's different than the other films in the series. This is, as you say, it's it's trying to be point break. And it is trying to be quite serious and grown up. And as a result, it's deeply boring. It is extremely dull. Um, you know, you, 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 you went straight in there by mentioning that Brian is a cop, but I seem to remember that's the thing you find out about 30 minutes into the movie. Like the, thir- the first 30 minutes, he is just, uh, seemingly pursuing a woman who works in the sandwich shop and getting in pointless fights in the street. And then, and then there's some street races and the street races are pretty much all in a straight line. Um, they, they don't really introduce corners until maybe halfway through the second film in the series. Um, and so it's just, and, and no one really has any motivation or charisma. You're supposed to have the sense that Vin Diesel has charisma and that Brian 
is being, you know, lured into this life of crime that, you know, he's, he's been sent in as an undercover cop, but he finds Finn Diesel so charming and his complete waste of human friends um that just hang around their house getting drunk and calling them names um you know he really wants to be part of that that found family um but i don't buy any part of it whatsoever uh i i really was happy when this movie ended should we talk about drag racing and why it's bad uh, <laughs> both as a sport as a culture but particularly as like a cinematic exercise I think, like, for, for, for a moment, I wasn't sure if I just found the film agonizingly boring because it was, you know, dumb and derivative and predictable and lacking any kind of ounce of class. Um, or whether it was sort of my fault for finding cars just to be uninteresting objects of themselves. Like, I, mm. I find it very difficult to, to, to fetishize or get int- excited about cars in general. It seems like like getting excited about a fridge or something only only less exciting because men are like really super aggressively into them in a, in a slightly unappealing way. Um, and also there's possibly like a class thing going on there. Am I just too middle class to get it? But um, you know what? I don't think I am the problem. <laughs> I'm going to absolve myself. This is my podcast. I can do what I like. I think, I think um, I do like films where cars do things that cars do not normally do, you know, uh, uh, I am into cars to that extent. But with drag racing, the idea is just to drive the cars, as you say, in like a straight line. And then somebody presses a nitro button and they go a bit faster and they win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what that is, why, why that would be a sport, but it's certainly not at all cinematic. And I don't, you can't build an exciting set piece around that. It's just impossible, I think. I do think other movies that are about cars and the way that this film is about cars, they tend to use the cars as a, you know, they build a spiritual connection. You know, if you watch the Gone in the Gone in 60 Seconds remake, the way Nicolas Cage talks about cars in that film and his relationship with a car that, you know, only he can start, he can feel the engine as he's driving it and know what's mm. wrong with it. And, you know, it's, it's about, that cars bond. as horses basically yeah cars as horses yeah that's a good way to think of it or the other film i i really like is speed racer which is oh, yeah. uh the wachowskis uh, it's hard to describe it's a, a a brightly colored anime inspired movie about a man who is literally called speed racer um <laughs> I mean, which isn't quite as ridiculous in a world in which Vin Diesel is, is an actual person that exists, but uh, and his dad is called Pop Racer in in the movie, um, <laughs> but it, it uses driving as a sort of metaphor for a creative pursuit. You know, like it's a it's a form of self expression the way that the characters drive in these mm. movies. Um, and so they can build within it the kind of character journey that you get in lots of other, you know, coming of age movies or, you know, even something like The Matrix, where there's a sort of character arc that maps on to Neo also becoming more powerful with Kung Fu. You know, they just do the same thing, but with cars. Um, the Fast and the Furious, certainly the, the first film, but throughout the series, they don't do that in it at any point. The way that they talk about cars is the way that, you know, Forza Motorsport talks about cars you know they 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 are in these early movies quite interested in 
the engines and in the parts of the engines. And as, and as you say, in NOS, they all talk about NOS and what kind of canister <laughs> that they're putting in their cars. And it's like, that's not like character defining. I'm not learning anything about these people. When they win, it just feels like it's the machine. Vin Diesel loves to say throughout the, all of these films that, you know, it's, it's not the car that makes the man, it's the man that makes the car or the driver that makes the car or whatever. But no, that's absolutely not true. These, <laughs> these, it's the cars. It's you pressing the button. There's maybe a little bit of a choice about when you pressed it, which they get into in later films. But, oh yeah, <laughs> but there's not much more to it than that. Yeah, I it, it, Yeah, we will get into it in later films. But it is remarkable how uh, how sparse those those sequences are, such that the addition of like a shot of a button being pressed is like a real kind of <laughs> cinematic upgrade. Um, but I, I I do like Vin Diesel in this film. I get the sense that you you didn't. Um, I don't, I like Vin Diesel more than any other character in the film. Oh, yeah. Like he, as an actor, there is you know he is watchable. There is a charisma there. I don't remember him being particularly likable in this film. Um, mm, you don't, yeah. you, you know he's weirdly protective of his sister. His best friends are just despicable people that I can't understand why anyone would want to talk to never mind like sit in the same room as like some of them are you know you get the sense that they haven't washed <laughs> in a while um I feel like I feel like he's still um at this stage of his career I don't think the series has done him any favors as an actor actually um but I, I think back then he was still sort of had an afterglow of charisma from some of his other roles like i i've i've always quite liked him i, I saw him first in in um, boiler room which is a, uh, a film about a dodgy investment brokerage uh and he's really good like you know it's, it's not a huge role it's a supporting role but it is a sort of interesting one because he's like one of the few people at this dodgy firm of of you know uh assholes basically who can be redeemed like he's part of this macho bro culture but at the same time you find out he still lives with his mum and he's sort of like defensive about it. And there's this sort of this kind of sensitiveness to him, <laughs> which you don't really associate with Vin Diesel in his latter day films. But mm. like there is this sort of ambiguity to Diesel, I think, as a performer where he can be like frattish or he can be like sensitive or, or steely. And then I actually did work at Shepton Studios when they were doing the, the special effects for Pitch Black, the first Pitch Black film. And that's, you know, that's another ambiguous role. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Riddick games too. Um, and he can, you know, even in, in this, you know, execrable film, he still manages to be quite charming, but also potentially dangerous. And he can like break out this sort of like, you know, boyish charm or he can seethe or he can scowl or he can, you know, fix you with a cold steel stare as required. And I, I think that that is like, inherent to him that's not really a part of the film i think he has brought something useful <laughs> to this otherwise terrible film um which should surely have ended everybody's careers but, uh, somehow the opposite I, happened see i i agree with that i think vin diesel i like vin diesel in this film i just don't like dominic toretto in this film yeah. and i actually i like vin diesel better as a result in the later movies some of the later movies i like less than i like this one yeah. uh, but vin diesel is better in them because he is not surrounded by the people or in the same setting as he is here 
and yeah, I like him as a performer. You know, I've seen him in in other movies, including other execrable trash like the Triple X action movies, where he plays Xander Cage, the like oh, yeah. extreme God. sports spy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which I went to the cinema to see. Oh, great. <laughs> aged, aged 16 or 17 or something. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, not good films, but he is good in them. He does carry them quite well. And of course, he, he does a good voice of uh, yeah. giant robots and also trees. True. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to, um, do you want to move swiftly on to Too Fast, Too Furious? Yeah, so Too Fast, Too Furious. This is probably, you know, the high point for my respect for Vin Diesel in that Vin Diesel read the script for this film and said, no, this is shit. I'm not (laughs) going to be in it. (laughs) Uh, And and by the sounds of it, I've done, you know, I've been reading around it. I'm sure it was somewhat ego driven. And I think he's admitted to the fact that it was somewhat ego driven, like the film uh, with the script that they wrote with Dominic Toretto in it, he felt was not further developing the Toretto family saga and so for that reason he didn't want to be in it he chose instead to go make chronicles of riddick the riddick sequel um which was a good choice i think um although i i do think it probably lumbered what was probably truly a bad script um with becoming an even worse script um (laughs) so too too fast too furious and i'll i'll come back to the name in a bit uh it was directed by john singleton who is best known for Boys in the Hood. Um, and I think he's a pretty good choice for directing this film. Like if, if, if you've seen the, the first one, it is about that kind of LA criminal gang. There's a community, uh, someone with like John Singleton could have come in and given, I think, extra credibility to a project like that. Unfortunately, that's not what the film is about. It's about Brian going undercover again, this time in Miami, um, to investigate a completely unrelated um, drug kingpin um, who <laughs> who is running an operation down there, uh, and he has to, you know, he's, he's asked. So at the end of the first film, we should we should set this up a little bit more. Do we do we want to give spoiler warnings, or are we just going all the way in with spoilers? Oh no, just go for it. So at the end of the first film, just like in Point Break, Paul Walker lets Vin Diesel go. And so as Too Fast, Too Furious starts, he is no longer a cop, but he gets drafted back in as a disgraced former LAPD officer to go undercover. He says he will do it, but he'll only do it if he can bring his own partner with him and choose who it's going to be. And he chooses Roman. Um, is it Roman Pierce? Uh, I I don't remember his surname. <laughs> I try not to think about him. <laughs> yes, it's Roman Pierce. So he chooses Roman Pierce as that he'd be the only man that he would trust to go undercover with. He's someone that Paul Walker, that um, Brian, sorry, knew when they were younger. Um, they committed some car thefts together and Roman went to prison for all those crimes. So the, the, the officers that are asking Brian to go undercover don't like this idea, but he says it's the, it's the only, only way he'll do it. Presumably in the original script, this would have been Dominic Toretto. You know, I'm going to partner with Dominic Toretto to go undercover, but Vin Diesel not being available in steps Tyrese Gibson. Um, and so Roman is introduced quite well, I think, you know, they go to, a demolition derby. 
to find him where Roman is wearing like an ankle bracelet. He's not allowed to stray too far away from his home. And so he has positioned his home basically in the car park of this demolition derby. Um, so we get introduced to him as like, he can drive, he's skilled at stealing cars. Uh, he and Brian have like personal history because Roman feels betrayed by Brian that, um, and thinks that, you know, Brian grassed him into the cops basically. And that's why Roman went to prison. Although that's not true as they find out later. And so they immediately have a fight. And so like, this is quite a decent introduction to what will become, um, I think one of the most <laughs> despicable depictions of a human being ever committed <laughs> to film, um, over the course of the, of the following eight films, um, but I don't mind this as an introduction. So off they go to Miami, where they meet um, pretty quickly the drug kingpin, played by Cole Hauser, who, you know, additions a group of goons by making them go on a dangerous attention-grabbing race so that he can see how good they'll be at the kind of discreet missions that he needs them to go on as a drug kingpin. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's just an excuse to have another car race. They also meet Eva Mendes, um, who is a much better actress than this film deserves. <laughs> and she is not well served by the plot. She is also an undercover agent, already undercover, <laughs> with this drug kingpin why do they need to send in brian as well it's not entirely clear um <laughs> so, uh, brian who we didn't mention this but in the first film when he goes undercover with dom he immediately becomes infatuated with mia dom's sister um and ultimately over the course of the series they will have a long-term relationship but brian now being undercover in a different place immediately <laughs> starts a relationship with eva mendez's character um because just any woman he sees i guess at this point <laughs> is good enough someone who sells them sandwiches someone who he could be <laughs> brutally murdered for even looking out wrong sure whatever um anyone would do um and this film is i think it's worse. It's worse than the first <laughs> film. I, I, I was, I was, I think more negative about the first film than you were. Uh, I think the first film, its biggest crime was that it was boring. This film is boring, but I think it also fails more fundamentally in terms of its structure and its dialogue and its, its action scenes are worse. Are like, Vin, you, you feel Vin Diesel's absence here, basically, like mm. his ability to carry that first film, his charisma, his, you know, genuine, sense of threat around Paul Walker is not carried by the new drug kingpin character. You don't get any sense of that from, from this new guy. <clears throat> and the the action sequences are all, I would say, I mean, generously, I would say that they were low budget. They might just be badly edited and badly shot because certainly the later films have a big budget and still have some of these same problems. But there are, there are, and a, a ridiculous number of cutaways to gear changes in this film. Like they will be driving down a highway and I swear by the end of it, they must be in like 13th gear for the number <laughs> of times yeah. that Singleton will cut to Brian, <laughs> you know, moving into a new gear and the engine noise playing over the top of it being pitch shift a little bit higher to like communicate that they're going faster, even though they don't actually show you the cars going faster or anything really happening other than that. Um, how do you feel about this film? Oh, well, not good, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, so there's three questions here. Is this a better film than the first one because it has uh, EMP harpoons? Is this a better <laughs> film because they somehow magically seem to summon infinite cars uh, for an audacious but completely pointless, as it turns out, sequence? Is this a better film because they ramp off a highway and onto a boat? And somehow the answer to all these questions is no. And that is really <laughs> remarkable. By all, by all kind of cinematic maths, this should be a better film just because of those set pieces. But it isn't. None of it makes really any any sense. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if that's what you come to these films for. But like, just there's so many times that this these undercover dudes, their police handlers, see them get into a car, which is literally what they've been hired by the police to do, and then immediately assume they're escaping rather than just <laughs> driving somewhere. And I think it's like, this happens like three times. Like, they're rearrested by their own handlers like three times for doing things that they've literally been employed by the handlers to do. And it's just, I, 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 <laughs> it's just complete nonsense. And there's a bit where uh, to escape the police again, they drive into a garage which just seems to contain the entire motoring populace of Miami. And then all of these people just does decide to be part of this massive distraction tactic, um, which looks cool from a drone shot with all these cars driving out of this garage. But uh, then they're like immediately arrested and it didn't even matter. <laughs> it's just, it's just toss. It's absolute toss. And, and, you know, for the crime of introducing Roman, which is, you know who's the most disgusting character who have ever been conceived for the screen. I don't. I don't think there's there's any punishment too great. Uh, yeah, he's just a witless, capering, misogynistic dirtbag who should uh, who should be fired into space. Mm, more yeah. later. <laughs> I will say that I do quite like Cole Hauser. Really, he's not, he's not particularly good in this film, but he is mean and beautiful. And uh, I sort of forgive him for his role in this hateful, hateful <laughs> film. And also, it's got a, it's got a bunch of other good bit parts as well. Like uh, mm. Tom Barry uh, is in it, and uh, James Ted, Ted, Ted Levine was in uh, in the first film, uh, who I really like. And yeah, James Remar sort of. Um, it's weird; they sort of like strangely seem to swap roles. Like I think um, Ted Levine is like the the hard ass in the first film. And then sort of Tom Tom Barry becomes the hard ass in this film, or is it vice versa? I forget. Anyway, um, there's some there's some little bit parts in it which aren't disgusting to me, but um, on the whole, pretty disgusting. Yeah, and it like I I I also wanted to highlight the bit parts because yeah, I do think they're good, but I'm surprised that you like Cole Hauser. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I haven't seen him in much else, but in this film. I don't think he's good. I don't think he has the requisite charm or charisma to play the kind of role that he's playing. Cause he's not, mm. he's, he's meant to be not only, you know, threatening and menacing and terrifying. You know, I think, you're, I think the closest you get to see him actually do something evil is I think he puts a bucket over someone's head with a rat inside it, mm. maybe. Um, which isn't, you know, a particularly menacing <laughs> scene really, but he's also supposed to be, you know, charming. He's, kind of won over Eva Mendes. You're not supposed to know whether she's maybe switched allegiances fully or whether she's still a trustworthy undercover cop or, you know, what's going on there. But it, it falls down because the villain doesn't work for me. Uh, and yeah, Roman does, like, after those first 15 minutes where I'm like, okay, I get why this guy's here. He is despicable. And we didn't really talk about it in the first film. 
but both of these films, their treatment of women is utterly despicable. despicable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Too Fast, Too Furious is worse for that. Like this is worse for having Brian and R- Roman walk into a party that's just filled with bikini models, gyrating, and they all love them because they own cars. Um, and yet it's not the low point in that regard for the series. No, I think maybe the next film is the low point for that. Shall we, shall we, shall we do it? Shall we move on? Yeah, let's move on. I, I guess I, the last point I'd make is I feel like Too Fast, Too Furious does at least, I don't know if this is, this isn't to its credit. This is, this is another negative point, but it sets up the series for what it's going to become. Like you, you mentioned the fact that it's got heat seeking harpoons or, or whatever i think at one point they jerry-rig an ejector seat into their car which is quite james bondy like it's starting to introduce gadgets which do appeal to me more than just cars in their base state um and also i wanted to flag the name the fact that it's called too fast too furious uh i feel like the fast and the furious series its names have a kind of mimetic quality to them uh, it's because they're stupid, but like there's a certain type of name which you can identify as, oh, that name sounds like a James Bond film. You know, Quantum of Solace is quite a nonsense name, but, you know, that, it does sound like the name of a James Bond film. There's a quality of name which is like, yeah, that feels like a, the name of a Star Wars movie. Uh, I think the Fast and the Furious series actually has the same thing. And I think it starts in part here with Too Fast, Too Furious. Um, but yeah, so moving on to <laughs> the third film, which has a title, which I also think is, you know, in keeping, if it was, if it was like a name for the series, it's uh, Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift. Yeah. Uh, directed by uh, the director who come to direct many of these films, Justin Lin. Uh, who, outside of the, the Fast and the Furious franchises, uh, directed Star Trek Beyond mm, and a couple of uh, True Detective episodes from the beloved season two. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, and also Chris Morgan is the guy who picks up the sort of writing duties here, um, who's, uh, I don't know, not really known for much else out of the Fast and the Furious. He wrote the uh, adaptation of Mark Miller's Wanted comic, which also wasn't very good anyway what's weird about this film is that it completely switches its entire cast uh, and and location we have a new protagonist um entirely uh, a 17 year old bro called sean played by the 24 year old lucas black who looks easily 30 years old <laughs> um i don't know his origin story as an actor and i feel a little sorry for saying this but it's sort of like his animations haven't loaded in he um <laughs> There are some scenes where he would probably be more convincing if he just sort of like slid through them in t posts. <laughs> it's genuinely one of the most inexplicable casting choices uh, since Jake Lloyd. I would say it's really it's really baffling. Um, but anyway, he's um, he's a kid apparently, uh, and he's been relocated to Japan for by his dad for reasons I, I don't care to remember. Um, Japan here is obviously not Japan at all, um, but nonetheless, he ends up. Uh, learning and find you know it's it's uh, finding solace in the drag racing community and learning the sacred art of this enigmatic and dangerous people uh which is going around a corner um, <laughs> and 
it's all part of a instead of a it's not a crime caper really the yakuza do turn up like an hour in uh but most of it's just a really bland high school underdog story um which isn't isn't in any way an improvement uh, what did you um, what did you make of it, Graham? Are the, are the car races better for the new and stunning addition of being able to go round corners sometimes? Yes, yeah, I do think the car races are better because they've got corners in them. But the protagonist is, I think, a new low for the series. Like Paul Walker is not. We didn't really talk about him. We talked about the charisma of Vin Diesel. He's not in Tokyo Drift either. He's, he's still not. Well, well, actually, he does turn up at the very end. We'll come back to that. But Paul Walker is not a great actor by any means. He does, however, have... I don't know. He feels very much like a budget movie star. Like, Paul Walker does okay. Like, he, you know, if you can't afford... Like, if you really can't afford Keanu Reeves, <laughs> then, yeah, put Paul Walker on your, in your movie. He, he'll do fine. He can, he can read the lines and seems okay, I suppose, most of the time. Whereas everything about this new guy is, is terrible. As you've said, the actor, but also the way they introduce him as a character. I don't understand why they've written any of these scenes. No, he's introduced as being, you know, he's troubled at school. He gets involved in this race, uh, like a drag race through a housing development with, with, I guess, the school bully. And the school bully has a, a woman, I guess, a fellow student in his car who says something along the lines of, winner gets me, boys, <laughs> before yeah. the race begins. Just, you know, setting out its stall right at the beginning in the opening minutes protagonist is like great i love to win, win women in car races i guess <laughs> um they zoom off protagonist guy crashes his car through a house just like totals someone's half half built home does not make me like him or make me think he's cool he then crashes his car completely so i think he's a bad at the thing he's supposed to be good at and is a terrible person <laughs> um he gets, you know, and then at that point, that's when he gets you know, pulled into the police station and given the option that the all juvenile delinquents are given, which is either you can go to prison or you can go to Tokyo. And so he chooses Tokyo, <laughs> as many do, off to the prison, prison island of Tokyo. And then at that point, like when he arrives in Tokyo, he almost instantly falls into the car culture there. And is just given incredibly expensive looking sports cars by strangers he meets, which he then proceeds to crash into every vertical surface. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it's not just that this film introduces corners to the races. I feel like it's introducing corners to the protagonist, like he's not seen <laughs> them before. Because like in that opening race in Tokyo, which I think is through like a parking garage or something yeah. like that, he just grinds his car like a skateboard against every single surface. Well, it's it's like they're trying to elevate the idea of cornering into some sort of mysticism <laughs> like something you can only attain from the wise people of the orient and you know it just isn't <laughs> fuck off i mean that's almost what i was asking we're talking about in the first film it was like you know it, talking about cars as metaphors rather than taking them literally as you know just isn't it great that we can press a button and they go a bit faster than they were before and so 
but it's not presented well. <laughs> and it's the fact that it's just literally going round corners. Yeah, I mean, I think it does It does have an advantage of the preceding films by having cars turn. Like, I do think that, that really mixes things up. But it, just the same, the, the same problems benight this, these, this film's action sequences in the cars, where it's like really badly composited shots of CG cars drifting through CG Tokyo. And it always cuts back to the, the gear stick or a gurning face rather than trying to establish like the continuity of space and time. Like, where are these cars, you know, in relation to each other or indeed the road or anything? You just don't get a sense of it. And it, like, it has this. All of these films have this really strict shot formula where you get like a shaky cam shot of the car bonnets nosing in front of one another. Then there's a shot of the villain sneering. Then there's a shot of a gear stick shifting aggressively. Then, you know, the one car gains on the other and the hero goes, oh, hell no. And the gear shifts, shifts again. And, you know, and then it repeats for like 90 minutes (laughs) or something. And then the villain finally looks set to win. And the shot, the, the hero goes, oh, hell no again and presses a button and the hero wins. And that's literally every single car race in this franchise up until maybe film six. Um, it's it's not there's there's nothing about it which is with which is exciting i just i don't understand it it's also this it feels like the point where the the the, the, the series is the most obsessed with cars and car culture generally mm. like it's almost like have you have you seen the sex in the city films <laughs> i have to say i missed out on those. sorry Jeremy. <laughs> well the sex in the city the first film has this kind of approach which is like it's partly fantasy fulfillment for its audience so there are long montages in that film where carrie and the gang go shopping and you just get to watch them try on clothes and the clothes are very expensive and they're brand names and i suppose that's part of what the the audience wants and like tokyo drift is the equivalent but with cars like there are so many like slow panning shots of fancy sports cars in garages in Tokyo where it's lingering over this expensive hardware that we're presumably supposed to be impressed and excited by, but it's just, it's just a fucking car. (laughs) I don't, I'm not into cars on that level. And so it's like, this feels like a film for car fetishists or hobbyists or whatever else you want to call it. And I don't necessarily begrudge them i do begrudge them that a little bit because <laughs> you know climate disaster and all of that um but but yeah it just doesn't work for me and i i do think the protagonist here is just utter trash like i i really didn't think i would miss paul walker ever but i do miss him in this film and then yeah. and then at the end um vin diesel does show up so he i don't know i don't know why <laughs> maybe he'd already he, he must have signed like a, a a deal halfway through the filming of this to come back and mm. rescue the franchise or something like that and decided to they decided to thread back some continuity with some callback shot at the end i don't i don't know what the story is but it feels quite out of place and in fact in fact it's so out of place that the subsequent three films i think take have to take place before um tokyo drift in order for them to make sense of anything that's going on should we um do you want to do you want to hit me with uh fast and the furious your your uh, synopsis of that 
Yeah, I, I want to say you you talk about Vin Diesel coming back to rescue the series. Well, so, Too hmm. Fast, Too Furious had a budget of seventy six million dollars. It made two hundred and thirty six million dollars. Mm-hmm. So that's the movie without Vin Diesel in it at all. And then Tokyo Drift. Uh, budget $85 million, box office $158 million. Mm-hmm. So you remove Paul Walker and set it in Tokyo, and I guess fewer people show up. But it's still making double its budget. Oh, right. But maybe that's on the basis of the previous film. Maybe it would never make that. that uh, maybe the, the next film, Sons, Paul Walker, Sons Diesel, would not, uh, Perhaps. Would, would not make the same bucks. I don't know. And I do think Vin Diesel's absence from these two films, it does change the narrative around the series. That instead of it dribbling away to become, you know, I think if Vin Diesel had been in Fast and the Furious 2 and Fast and the Furious 3, then that would have been it. Like, that would have been the end of the series. It was a trilogy. Um, maybe it continued to be successful, but at that point, they're probably all too expensive for it to continue or it just, you know, the, the actor support of it at that point. Whereas Fast and the Furious 4, Vin Diesel comes back, Paul Walker comes back, uh, all, all of the original cast, so Michelle, Michelle Rodriguez and Jordana Brewster come back as well. And it's like the heroes return. It's, it's a proper Fast and the Furious film after the, the weirdness of the two before. Um, also returning are Justin Lin, as you mentioned, who directed Tokyo Drift and Chris Morgan, who was the writer on that film. They become the kind of creative leads of this series going forward, I suppose. And so this is a film which I watched and I'll be honest, I don't remember much of it. <laughs> There's a middle period for these Fast and the Furious films, four, five, to a lesser degree, six, where I think they genuinely become better films, but I think they also in some ways become more forgettable films. But because but because they're not incredibly awful anymore, they're just they're just ordinarily awful. They do not hold in the memory quite so much. But so this is set as you say, it turns out Tokyo Drift was taking place far in the future, possibly like 15 years in the future after one and two, because Fast and Furious, which is the fourth film, it takes place five years after Toretto escapes from the US after at the end of the first film. You know, he's fled the country with his crew and they're now living, you know, him, Letty and the other terrible people are living in the (laughs) Dominican Republic. Um, And also with them is Han, who was the kind of benefactor who helped Lucas Black in Tokyo Drift by giving him that sports car. You know, that's the main reason why this film has to be a prequel to Tokyo Drift, because Han... It seems is killed in a car crash. <laughs> the most retcon scene of any scene in cinema <laughs> history. They retcon that one scene where Han dies in a car crash like four times over the following movies. Uh, Han uh, in this series, it's worth saying, is played by an actor called Soon Kang, who was in Justin Lin's like indie movie debut. Um, so it seems a lot like Justin Lin just likes this actor and that they're friends and have known each other for a long time and he will do anything to make sure that his friend still has a job. So although we just saw him blow up and die, he's back. He's part of the gang with Letty and so on in the Dominican Republic. And at some point early in the film, Dom 
realizes that uh, Letty, his girlfriend, is going to have to spend her entire life running from the law, uh, and that this is no way for them to live, and it's all because of Dom and his actions. And so he decides that he's going to flee in the middle of the night and leave leave his crew behind, um, so that they can go back to America uh, without him and you know resume their normal lives, and he can just be on the run, his sad self. Um, three months later, Dom gets a call from his sister to say that Letty is dead. <laughs> Didn't work out so well. Um, Dom left. Uh, all these criminal pals did not go back to America. They continued to be criminals, and Letty has been killed. And so Dom returns to America to investigate, basically, her murder. Um, meanwhile, Brian also returning. He's no longer a police officer. He's now an FBI agent. Apparently, you just kind of fail upwards through the criminal system, which is fair enough. Uh, he's trying to track down a Mexican drug lord. Uh, and um, through machinations of plot, I can't quite remember. Brian and Dom end up teaming up. Oh, that's what it was. Letty was working undercover for Brian. And so she was killed by the the criminal gang that Brian is is investigating. Brian feels really responsible for Letty's death. It puts Dom and Brian back in a position where they have to interact again. But there's also this tension because mm, does Dom blame Brian for this? Of course he does. Um, <laughs> are they going to work it out? Who cares? <laughs> um, uh, and so on and so on. Um, Thanks for coming to the lock-in That about sums it up Do do you remember more of this film Than I do? Actually no, no, as you're saying it I'm like going, oh, (laughs) maybe Um, I do, I mean Yeah, I mean, so I think uh, It it sort of gave I remember it giving me false hope this one Because like uh, The CG doesn't look very good anymore But uh, and it's got this kind of cartoon physics that never really convinces, but like the opening opening stunt sequence, the film sort of cares that you understand what the sequence of events is. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that causality feels vaguely important and that you know where one thing is in relation to another. And that is like an achievement well beyond anything that the preceding films have, uh, have uh, attempted. Um, and then there's a, a foot chase sequence, which is like similarly kind of comprehensible, which is a, a start. And, you know, I, I remember a good bit where Brian punts his uh, quarry off a chain link, fe- chain link fence just by sort of like body slamming into the other side. And it's, a, you know, you take what you can get from these films. And like, <laughs> yeah, that's three, three second shot is, is quite good. <laughs> and I, I wonder if like maybe getting a, a new editor helped because it's the same director as Tokyo Drift, but maybe the shots are being pasted together in post more kind of coherently but um uh it is unfortunately a a false hope uh (laughs) (laughs) uh, because the rest of the film is just like inert dumb shit dialoguing racing tryouts for gangsters which seems to be the thing that everybody always does and doesn't make any sense and there is more going on with the races there because they've got both turns now and also in on you know incoming traffic which is a new thing but there's still no spatial continuity communicated by like just the blizzard of cuts that occurs when anybody's racing. And I'm pretty sure at one point, like a character gets absolutely fucking killed, like conclusively annihilated. And then a minute he's like neck and neck with Dom. And it just, I, it's, it, 
it's sort of exasperating. Yeah, it's just exasperating. And the other thing about the, I mean, the cars, I mean, it almost feels redundant to note at this point, but the series has never once like convincingly justified the use of cars to do any of the crime things for which they've been commissioned. Like there's a car chase through a CG mine in this one. And it, it looks, it looks complete ass. It looks, it, uh, and it, it feels just completely weightless and there's no, there's just no effort to explain why it's happened. It's just the most indolent setup for a, for a spectacle, which isn't even spectacular. And Brian continues to be a horrid character in this, worse than in the previous films as well. Like, I think they're trying to grow him as a character. So he starts out as this, like, just empty vacuum mold uh, for your common or garden dipshit. And now they're sort of trying to pour into this this vacuum mold, like an anti-hero edginess. But they've just instead just they've just made him an absolute prick. <laughs> it's, it's, he's just it doesn't give him depth. It just makes you hate him because he's just constantly petulant and he's stupid and he's corrupt. And like Vin Diesel can sort of like carry off that bad boy stuff, but I don't think Paul Walker can. I don't know if that's Paul Walker or just the terrible writing. Probably both. I mean. You say that Vin Diesel can pull it off. And I, again, I do find, <laughs> find him a, ch- a charming actor. But this is, you know, the beginning of this film, Letty is murdered. His whole motivation for this film is uh, investigating her death, getting revenge or justice for her death. You know, she's supposedly the love of his life. It still contains multiple scenes in which they go into parties filled with scantily clad ladies. And Vin Diesel is immediately cavorting with them and like, hey, baby, you know, that sort of stuff. Women are either there to die or they're there to be won as trophies or they're there for the lads to sexually harass in funny ways. Funny ways. Yeah. Um, Um, This also contains, I don't really remember anything about the villain. I remember Gal Gadot is in this film. Yep. Don't fully Mm. remember why. (laughs) I remember him more in later films because she becomes a recurring character. I don't remember anything about the villain in this film except for that he's a Mexican drug lord, and at one point he says, we know so different. (laughs) (laughs) Which is both a terrible cliche, and in the broken English, a bit racist. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'd actually mixed up the villain uh, from that film with the next one, uh, because I cannot picture the villain in now, now you mention it in in the fourth film. But in in Fast Five, I remember the the villain is meant to be... uh, it says a corrupt businessman um, in in the Wikipedia summation, but I'm pretty sure he was also a cartel dude. Anyway, he sort of looks like Sean Pertwee, uh, <laughs> but he's not him. Uh, should we move on to Fast Five? I'm, I'm conscious that there's there's another six films to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's play on. So Fast Five, uh, director Justin Lin, writer Chris Morgan again. Uh, but the difference here is that Vin Diesel has taken over the production of the series at this point, and uh, maybe that involves like uh, a greater creative control, more stuff about Vin Diesel's lovely family. I don't know. Probably an injection of of cash because uh, the big name star is now attached forever. I don't know. Well, but- supposedly we didn't mention it, but supposedly Vin Diesel like did rewrites on the script for the original film. 
you know, mm. either on set ad-libbing, but he said that he didn't think the script was very good. And so he added a lot of the edge and believability, he said, to the oh, original yeah. script. <laughs> so I think he's been creatively involved mm. in all of the films he's actually starred in. But yes, his, his influence is obviously growing. So this one actually takes, again, takes place before the events, uh, the events such as they are, of um, Tokyo Drift. Um, and it begins with uh, this prison bus break uh, stunt, uh, which is teased like at the conclusion of the previous film. I don't actually remember who is in the bus, <laughs> who's incarcerated. Um, but it doesn't matter. Um, uh, I, mean, I think that the plot in this one, uh, it's the, the car bros are going to try and steal uh, $100 million from this cartel dude who looks a bit like Sean Pertway, um, whilst being chased uh, by uh, a massive DEA agent in the shape of Dwayne The Rock Johnson, um, which sounds promising. You know, the injection of another you know, mesmerizing uh, star should should be an uptick. Um, but I've said that that promise is is almost immediately squandered by the opening stunt, which just completely shits its pants. It's it's just like a shockingly anticlimactic moment which is instantly implausible with this just this stupid outcome that is seemingly the opposite of the objective uh, which would all be just part of the course but it's followed by this uh, lengthy exposition in the form of newsreel footage which tells you how brilliant it was and how it wasn't stupid at all um did you did you feel that the remaining two hours and ten minutes of the film redeemed that um that hot piss cream <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> no i feel likewise to you like the rock is a good addition to to this film i think this is like the first movie in the series that it sort of feels like it get, brings all the disparate characters together because vin diesel mm. and paul walker are, are, are in it but you also get um ludicrous and uh, roman pierce are both back gal gadot is still in it uh you know han from from Tokyo Drift is still in it. So it feels like they've established, you know, a consistent universe <laughs> such as it is. But it also feels like you've got this weird mixture of, you know, Vin Diesel, The Rock, Gal Gadot, quite charismatic uh, actors mixed in with your Roman Pierces and your Ludacris's and like the, the lesser, more despicable characters from the more despicable should have been straight to video sort of films. And so like, it's a, a really weird mixture. Hmm. I'm t- I did enjoy this more than the previous films. Like I mean, aside from that, that uh, kind of disappointing opening sequence, there's like the, uh, it's followed up by a, a train heist. It feels like the film is now about heists. That's what they're, they're getting into. Yeah. Um, and the the bro boys steal these cars, which are stored within the train carriages, by peeling off the train side and yoinking them out onto this sort of janky, bouncy truck, uh, which is actually the only vehicle uh, with any character in the entire series. <laughs> um, it does blow up immediately after that, but um, the see, um, but it's not, it's, you know, it's, the sequence is it's it's a lot of fun. It's stupid, uh, but everybody knows it, like it, it sort of enjoys itself, um, uh, and I almost did as well um there's some good punching in the film there's some good jumping nobody presses a button to make a like a neon subaru go zoom so <laughs> i mean i think the thing about this i mean maybe we'll get into this more as the, the, the film goes on but like i the heists are always just slightly not even at their best they never quite give enough of a shit about coherence to 
satisfy me as heists in other films do. Um, so like the, just, just, there's just weird choices. Like the car keys for these cars are stored behind sheets of glass on this train carriage, like they're alarms. And there's just no reason for, for that to be the case. Like, why didn't they just hotwire the cars? Or, you know, wouldn't it be more fun if they'd lifted them from a DEA man further down the train or something? Or, and I don't know. I just, uh, the DEA agents actually spot them um, by looking out the window of the train um, and at an angle which is impossible for them <laughs> to have been seen. Uh, I don't know. It just feels like, it just feels like the filmmakers never care enough to spend the time solving problems with their situations. But the problems are what make heists interesting. Like if you, it's what does Tom Cruise do when Factor X is introduced or Factor Y is removed? That's that's the that's the fun of those films. And these films are just like, and then and then and then and then and then like a like a you know breathless three year old telling you some dream they had. It's, <laughs> And uh, and obviously they're cut together in a way which doesn't, you know, again, doesn't make any spatial sense. And it's a shame because there's actually some decent stunt work in here by credible stunt actors and a huge budget. But they just, they often just waste it by chopping it into tiny pieces of pieces of pieces. Yeah, I feel I feel like cars at this point become the series Achilles heel. Like mm. <laughs> they they are trying to be a heist movie, but cars aren't good for most parts of a heist. Uh and the the need for ev- like every action sequence starts at 80 miles an hour essentially. Whereas if you look at the heists in say a Mission Impossible film, there is real pacing to them. They spend quite a bit of time on the setup. They establish the stakes. You know, there are, there is like, there is maybe some like action beats and fighting. And then there's like maybe a bit of a stealthy, sneaky sequence. And because they've established the stakes at the beginning, when things go wrong, then you understand the tension of the moment. And then when they deal with that in some like larger than life, you know, Tom Cruise jumping out of a skyscraper in Abu Dhabi sort of way, you you feel that and it feels impactful. Whereas almost every haste in the Fast and the Furious series begins with them driving six cars at 80 miles an hour into a location um, in a way that alerts everyone there to what's going on. And so you can never have any kind of pacing moment. You can't mm. even do exposition in progress, you know, like the exposition scene is always completely separate from the action scene. You know, like every James Bond film will have a moment where they're at the party for the evil villain's lair um, and they're talking to each other over headpieces about, you know, what the mission is and what the stakes are. You can't really do that when you've got six people in six separate cars and they're all driving extremely quickly. And so the exposition always happens in the scene before and is this kind of really long, laborious, slightly boring exposition scene and so that, that then fails to kind of establish the stakes because they're describing things that you can't see yet like you don't have a frame of reference for mm. until it cuts into the next scene and so you're having to do extra work as an audience member to like follow along with something that's being ill-explained and is utterly stupid and ridiculous um and you know i i i, I think when i watched fast five the weirdest enid blighton adaptation i've ever seen um uh, you know my feeling was oh okay you know the, the series has achieved a level of mediocrity now like at this point 
Like if I had watched Tokyo Drift or the original Fast and the Furious film on a plane, I would get 20 minutes in, I would turn it off somewhat disgusted. I feel like Fast Five is, I've reached the point where if I put this on the back of a seat in front of me, I would watch it to the end. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a five out of 10 plane movie, I think at this Ooh, point. That's, uh, I think you're overselling it. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, I do think the next film, uh, actually achieves a sort of, uh, it crosses the Mission Impossible 2 parity threshold, that's what I would say, <laughs> uh, to become sort of just frothy action nonsense. Uh, uh, I enjoyed whole sequences of Fast and the Furious 6, actually. I actually, I actually enjoyed them. Imagine that. <laughs> um, I didn't like the film overall, but I mean, it, yes, uh, take, take me, uh, into the world of Fast and Furious 6, Graham. Well, Fast Five, so it had a budget of $125 million and it made $626 million. It was like almost double what the film had done before. That's what The Rock does for you. So th- that's context leading into Fast and Furious 6, um, which is again directed by Justin Lin and written by Chris Morgan and stars pretty much all of the same people from the previous movie. Like the gang has been established now. And if you liked any of these people, you would enjoy the fact that, you know, we're seeing them interact. You know, it's kind of like if they made uh, the Avengers movie before they made any of the individual movies. And then also all of the Avengers were cunts. Um, (laughs) So um, this film is it starts in a similar way to Fast and the Furious 4, where the gang are all living uh, abroad in hiding after their successful heists in Fast 5. The difference is now they're all millionaires. <laughs> so like they were successful in their criminal endeavors in the last film, and so they're now exceptionally wealthy. They're all on the run, um, but all of them have built, bought fancy cars or have got fancy homes and... Um, I've kind of like started to pair off and going and going into hiding, uh, which is kind of becomes a problem for the series because they don't have any motivation. <laughs> like their motivation before was they're thieves and they're trying to steal things. Now they have no reason to actually steal things. Although in some respects you can argue that it makes it better because it does push it outright into spy stuff because Owen Shaw is basically like a super villain. Um, I will say, okay. So, I mean, uh, I don't really remember what happens in this film, apart from the fact that uh, Luke Evans is in it as a, uh, as as some sort of rogue MI5 agent uh, who's, I can't remember what his world ending plan is, uh, but the, the fast and the furious team for some reason are, lured into tracking him down and stopping him quite why they've become like a global crime fighting team now is not really well handled but it doesn't really matter i i think like um the action is just sufficiently better it's grown broadly competent and sometimes cool there's a lot of there's still too many cuts in all the fist fights uh which do a massive disservice to the martial artists they now have um on cast and they actually, I think they just have too many cast members. Like, uh, they're all having fights simultaneously. It just makes it hard to follow or care about anything that's happening. Um, but uh, the car chases are spatially and sequ- sequentially coherent. And there's full of, there's a feeling of real danger and, and spectacle. There's a part where 
armored Formula One cars uh, uh, are used uh, to kind of just drive under other cars, like like Robot War, <laughs> like Robot Wars robots, and flip them. Then that that looks great and feels fun. And there's a sequence where a tank erupts from the back of a truck, which is which is great. Uh, <laughs> and there are a few events which are just so outrageously dumb that I actually laughed out loud and clapped, uh, which hasn't happened in any of the previous <laughs> films. Um, I, I, just, I really like the tank sequence, and it's yeah, it's, it's like barely remarked upon. Huge civilian death toll <laughs> must have occurred. Uh, and there's a, th- a thing in the series where uh, characters um, uh, they treat cars as though they are like safety blankets, and characters are constantly being caught on the bumper on the on the bonnets of cars. Uh, as though that would save them in some way from like a 50 foot fall um but there's a sort of audacious stupidity to it which i quite admire i mean if you're going to blow any sense of credibility then then why not do it that way yeah so i've i've caught up the reason they do it is it's the rock comes to them and says i need your help bringing down luke evans and the reason you should do it is because if you do, I will get you amnesty for all your several crimes in the previous film. So you can come back home to America, uh, even though you're, you know, millionaire thieves that have killed several people across several nation states at this point. Um, I can get you amnesty, apparently, if you catch this one man. Um, but they, then Dom gets the extra motivation of being shown a photo of Letty his supposedly murdered wife, who it turns out is alive, but seemingly working with this villain now for some reason. Um, This starts a real trend for the series of any character who dies coming back um, a film or two later. And I feel like, yeah, I agree with what you're saying about the the action set pieces in this being, being better and some of it being fun, but I still struggle to enjoy it because it's all so meaningless. As you say, like the, Mm. Being able to catch people on car bonnets is ridiculous, but you got to describe that in more detail because specifically that's part of the <laughs> tank sequence um, where they, I think they like tether the tank to a vehicle in order to like drag it over the side of this this bridge, and Letty is thrown from a vehicle and is going to fall to her death, but. Dominic Toretto flips his car over the, the the gap between two roads and like catches her in midair on his car. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's just <laughs> the physics of it make no sense whatsoever. And so like it does it doesn't I don't feel anything about it. Like I'm not tense watching it, I'm not excited hmm. watching it. It's just it still feels like someone is just describing nonsense to me. Yeah, uh, I think you I, get maybe one of those per film. Like, <laughs> I think you have to earn them, though. And, and unfortunately, the, the whole the whole of this series exists in that same level of unreality without consequence or peril, really. Uh, and, and so it doesn't, as stupid as it is, it doesn't feel like standout stupidity of the kind that would uh, should be celebrated. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, there's, there's a sequence where Brian goes to prison. Uh, he goes to prison to infiltrate the prison. And... Mm. I have no recollection of why he goes there or what he learns there. And the weird thing is, neither does the film. Because <laughs> it clearly doesn't matter. Because nobody bothers to ask him ever why he, why he went to the prison and what he found out. And they should have just left him there, really. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure he goes to interrogate someone there. But they end up getting the information a different way anyway. And so that whole sequence is completely pointless. There are There are, like... There are some moments I like. I like when the plane explodes at the end and Dom drives his car out the back of it. <laughs> like, 
and and the hand to hand combat is better this or this time around. It does help that they've got like Gina Carano, for example. You know, she can fight, and the series is really lacking in people who can sell a punch. Mm. And part of the reason, a lot of the time, you know, you've talked about how the there's lots of cutting and you kind of lose sense of the continuity. Sometimes I think that's because in the early films they didn't have the budget to show the chases in full. In, in some of these later films where there's more personality or hand-to-hand based combat a lot of the time i think they're cutting because the actor doing the move can't actually do the move yeah um you get a lot of that in i feel like the next film when shaw's brother is introduced with a much better actor (laughs) (laughs) or at least more charismatic performer I, I, you know, even though I forgot his name, I quite like Luke Evans uh, as an actor. But anyway, yes, Furious 7, as it was called. Uh, James Wan is the director now, who's the, the horror impresario uh, known for, I think, co-creating Saw, Insidious, uh, and The Conjuring. I think he also directed one of the Aquaman films, um, which was okay. Um, and uh, the series has sort of finally straightened out its timeline now because this is actually the I think this is the first film set after Tokyo Drift. <laughs> um, so Han is dead at this point, and uh, Deckard Shaw, uh, who is uh, Jason Statham, um, the brother of the antagonist of the preceding film, has in fact uh, now been retconned to be the killer of Han in the previous film. We I think we previously thought he just crashed, but now it's shown that in some way Jason Statham blows up his car. Um, and he is, uh, and he does that because he's out for revenge against uh, Dominic Toretto and his crew because they nobbled his brother and put him on a life glug in the last film. And that's that's sort of the plot, really. Um, you don't, I mean, do do you need more plot when you have Jason Statham to cyclone kick men through desks? I don't know. I don't know that you do. What do you think, G? I don't think that you do either. Um, it also has a big. Sorry, I just uh, it has uh, this. The, the, the main selling point of this film is that. The Rock and Statham throw a lot of office furniture at each other, um, and that is, that is great to watch. And, and, and it's really impressive that they found find ways to like hospitalize The Rock without ever impugning his ability, because <laughs> clearly he, it's in his contract that he couldn't be beaten by anybody. Um, but so they find kind of like slightly kind of sideways ways of taking him out of the picture. Um, yeah, we've, we're, we're speeding through these, although it maybe doesn't feel. Like that, if you're listening to it and you're more than an hour into listening to talk about the Fast and Furious films, but like he he is taken out of commission because he saves his fellow agent, and that fellow agent is the woman that Dom was dating for several movies when he thought Letty was dead. Uh, now, in the previous film, he discovered that Letty is still alive, and she switches sides although she still has amnesia she doesn't have any memories of their previous relationship and so this woman just gracefully steps aside (laughs) because it's important that women are just props on the journey for men um but she does at least you know become a kind of cool cop until she gets immediately thrown out of a window and saved by the rock like five minutes (laughs) into into this movie and yeah like statham i think is the best villain the series has had up to, up until this point you do quite a good job of establishing him as like a an actual threat um at the same time however uh i still feel like the, the cars are the achilles heel of this movie mm. like they they really want to establish some sort of personal animosity or stakes between 
Dom and and Statham, but you can't do that if they're just driving and racing. And so they're constantly coming up with reasons for these people to like park their cars and have tense conversations. Um, this manifests in like Dom repeatedly challenging Jason Statham to like an old fashioned street fight. Uh, and Statham initially refusing and he just brings guns to the battle and, and, um, I believe Dominic Toretto is saved by Kurt Russell, <laughs> who is uh, now featured as like a mainstay of the series, playing a character called Mr. Nobody. He's like a secret agent slash benefactor for Dom and his team of car thieves who are now international mercenaries, I guess. They're basically the A-team at this yeah. point is the way to think of it. Um, and Mr. Nobody has their number. And, and this kind of, it concludes with Statham after having had several opportunities to simply snipe Dominic Toretto in the head and move on with his life and passing up on every single one of them for no reason. It concludes with them finally settling down to having a fight at the end, on the roof of a car park, wielding giant wrenches like <laughs> lightsabers or like samurai swords. Which I feel like if you were to write a parody sketch of the Fast and the Furious <laughs> series, then having two men fighting with with wrenches, the paraphernalia that you use to work on cars of any kind, really, uh, was, is how you would do it. It's utterly ridiculous. Uh, and it ends with uh, a man in a helicopter firing a rocket at them, which blows up part of the car park. Similarly, because it feels like maybe Jason Statham had it in his contract that he could not be beaten by Dominic Toretto. <laughs> and so he is instead blown, blown up by a helicopter and he falls into a hole, at which point Dom says, that's the thing about street fights. The street always wins. They're not on the street. They're on a car park. <laughs> yep. And... It wasn't even the tools of the street, i.e. your wrenches, <laughs> that won. It was the helicopter with the missiles. Of course, after that, um, Dom gets in his Dodge Charger again, grabs a bag full of grenades, drives his car up the crumbling remains of the car park, flips his car into the air, hangs the bag of grenades on the side of the helicopter as it hovers in midair. Uh, and then someone else shoots the bag of grenades, I think the rock maybe, so that the helicopter explodes. And Dom takes his, like, he leaps from the, from his exploding car as it like tumbles through the air and lands on the street. Perfectly safe. Are you suggesting um, that that's not at all believable? <laughs> I'm suggesting yes. Uh, and it also becomes a, a theme, like, at this point, I think every film from here on features Dom leaping from an exploding car, like tumbling out of the, of well, the, the car door as it's on fire, bursting into flames. There's, there's also a bit where uh, Letty, played by Michelle Rodriguez, sort of does 180 in her vehicle, so it extends the back end over a cliff edge. Uh, for Brian to catch the spoiler as he falls past, <laughs> which I say I enjoyed, but I mean it is. I mean the, the cars do just operate on such a, a, a alien and fickle sense of physics here that it's you know. I in my notes I have it as driver tar the last car bender, <laughs> uh, it, it just makes it impossible to invest really in anything that's happening on screen. And even like the the fist fights, I mean they do have the rock and Statham, and they do some good uh, wrestling. But then 
they also have Tony Jar on cast, and they completely waste him in a fight with the obvious non-martial artist Paul Walker. Um, and like to, to the extent where they're often like cut between shots from the same angle, which <laughs> 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 is bizarre. And yeah, I, I think they do. They have some ideas in them. Like the, they seem to have stolen a few camera tricks in the raid, and the stunt coordinator has good ideas for individual moves, but they just can't undo the fact that they're they're chopped to pieces. And outside of the action, there's just too much talking. There's just too much shit about the Toretto family. Uh, and it, but it's just, I mean, I know I know you were setting this up as being sort of like the the through line for the series, which sort of anchors it in a way. But I just think it's a terrible myth, and <laughs> like the shit family, all of these, every second that these wank jobs spend discussing family is a second in which Jason Statham isn't wrestling a, a big man, and that's a mistake, right? <laughs> Yeah, at this point, every like I feel like the film has introduced a lot of movie stars that are much more charming than Vin Diesel. Like, mm-hmm. and again, I feel like I've become the negative one about Vin Diesel, and I quite like him, but I don't think he's as good as Dwayne Johnson or Jason Statham. Well, I think he's becoming increasingly one note over the course of this series as well. Uh, he, he's he's just sort of has a sort of like slightly winced face that could be this sort of. Uh, it, it's it's not clear what expression he's trying to pull. It's it's sort of just very uh, locked down. Uh, I, I think it's meant to insinuate some a deeper thought to which the audience doesn't have access, but it, it, it isn't a charismatic performance anymore, I don't think. And also it doesn't help that Vin Diesel's neck has just been completely subsumed by his shoulders now. He is just a cone of meat uh, in a vest. <laughs> It's also like, I don't feel like Vin Diesel has any compelling motivation. Like his motivation here is that he's pursuing the killer of Han, but we saw Han die fully four movies ago <laughs> um, in a car crash that was only retconned after the fact to be caused by Jason Statham. Uh, whereas like, I am actually much more moved by Dwayne Johnson being blown out of a window by Jason Statham in the opening moments of this film. And therefore that being his reason. I'm like, I'm also much more like, the scenes with Dwayne Johnson in the hospital with his daughter are much more interesting and light and fun than any scene involving Dom and his family. Um, you also get the nice moment where Dwayne Johnson flexes his arm in order to cause a cast <laughs> around his arm to like smash, because mm. <laughs> which I quite liked. Um, I, I, it's also yeah, like there is there is a couple of. Tony Jaa is wasted. I do like the moment where Paul Walker pushes a table towards him and Tony Jaa um, walks like kind of backwards up a wall and then does a kind of black backflip and kicks Paul Walker in the face. That's quite satisfying. <laughs> um, the director, James Wan, is, however, kind of obsessed with turning the camera upside down anytime a character kind of rolls. Mm. <laughs> you know, he has the, the camera follow, which feels like a trick bor- borrowed from something like The Raid. But yeah, it does it kind of three times and every time with diminishing returns. Um, and also the other thing I wanted to know in this film was Roman Pierce. <laughs> Just at this point, we haven't talked about him in like five films. He's still here. Yeah. Uh, he's, and- he's slowly making this transformation to being the most unlikable character, <laughs> not only in cinema, but also within the, the fiction of the universe. Like everybody just drags him all the time and he's absolutely disgusting. And, and he's the butt of every joke. I don't know if that is like 
a delicious irony or whether this is just a, a greater call for his excision from the franchise. I don't know. This is the film where Roman Pierce's hero moment is that he sings happy birthday badly. <laughs> like that's the only thing he successfully does is cause, cause a ruckus um, by disrupting a party. Everything else he tries in this movie, he fails at. So it's not just that every character is constantly ripping into him and that he is total trash. He is also completely incompetent. He has no reason to be there at any point. Mm. Whereas, you know, like other characters, like Ludacris, for example, his character name I can't remember, but he was introduced originally as like a really good mechanic. Now he's the cruise hacker. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like that's quite a character journey that's never explained. Was Roman Pierce they don't do that with? What like he was in the first ten minutes set him up as he is good at driving and he's good at fighting and he can steal cars. And six movies later, he's not good at those things anymore <laughs> or, or anything, anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Do you want to um, uh, move on to the fate of the Furious? Yes. So this is, I like that this is called, I like that Fast and the Furious 8 is called the fate of the Furious. <laughs> this is what I mean about the naming. Mm. Um, I should also, I want to, I, I keep bringing up the box office and box office isn't reflective of artistic quality or anything. And th this series proves it because Furious 7 Budget $190 million. It made $1.5 billion. Like this, the series has doubled in size for the last three entries from like $360 million to $780 million to now $1.5 billion. It is ridiculous. Um, and Furious 8 continues in kind. So this feels like a film which is yearning to break free from the baggage of the previous films. Like oh, everything we've just said about how Dom is feeling one note and a lot of the other characters are feeling more compelling or like better movie stars. This film feels like the one that maybe knows it. Um, you know, famously the rock and Vin Diesel don't, don't get on. This also feels like maybe the, the film that's the reason why because the rock is very almost just the main character and star of this um and he's in a much better film than vin diesel is so we kind of get this like opening setup where the rock is coaching his kids soccer team and has trained them to do a kind of maori chant before matches in the way that the new zealand rugby team does uh, it's quite kind of adorable. It's fun. Um, the Rock is charming. He's like loves his kids, and he's like chewing out this uh, agent that is trying to compel him to take on a job. Um, taking down a cyber terrorist called Cipher, who we will learn is played by Charlize Theron, who is a good actress and a really fantastic action star who is completely wasted by this movie. Dom, meanwhile, he's off on his honeymoon with Letty in Havana um, when he gets kind of uh, dragged away by Charlize Theron's character because she shows him something that we as the audience don't see but later discover is a photo of his son that we didn't know he had. It turns out that 
the police officer lady that he was dating when he thought Lady was de- dead had a, had his child, but never told him. Uh, and she and her son have been kidnapped by Cipher in order to compel Dom to go rogue and turn evil and turn against uh, his former team and steal a bunch of things for her so that she can, mm, it's not entirely clear, launch nuclear Armageddon, hold politicians accountable. There are an interminable number of scenes between Charlize Theron and Vin Diesel in which they gurn at one another on a plane. Uh, And you learn nothing about either one of them. It is a kind of like nasty dirge of a film. (laughs) While around that, The Rock (laughs) is having great adventures with Dom's crew and Jason Statham is back. (laughs) um, Because... And his mum, played by fucking Helen Mirren. Yeah, I mean, I'm um, I'm fully happy for her to gild her her uh, her retirement fund with with the the gains from these films. Uh, but yeah, she deserves to be in better films, really. <laughs> but she's she's playing this like really fun. I don't know. It's not Cockney, but like a kind of slang talking old fashioned London thief. Um, who is the mother of Jason Statham's character. Jason Statham, who was previously set up as like murderous supervillain, who killed one of the main cast members, is now sort of being like softened and turned into, ah, he's just a lovable rogue, really. And it absolutely works because you like Jason Statham anyway. So secretly (laughs) you want him to hang around. There's some really fun action sequences where I think The Rock gets sent to prison for reasons I don't remember, even oh, yeah. though I watched this film like a week ago. Um, and then, but, and then, uh, there's maybe it's Mr. Nobody that does it, that releases all the cages so all the prisoners can escape. This, of course, sets Jason Statham's character free at the same time. Jason Statham sort of parkours his way through the building. I don't know. If you've ever seen a film with Jason Statham in it, it doesn't look like a man who can do parkour, and he's definitely not. Like, every action he performs in that is a cut to, like, a two-second shot of a man where you can't see his face because he cannot do any of the moves. The result of which is that they can't have a single continuous shot of Jason Statham moving from one side of the room to the other. (laughs) It's a really weird skill to give that actor... (laughs) In particular, when what he's good at is like looking serious and shooting and punching. Um, but never mind, that's like a fun sequence. The Rock is good. Jason Statham is good. And it leads up to this like, uh, action sequence at the end, which I think is really fun, which is Jason Statham boarding Charlie's Theron's plane in order to get back Vin Diesel's child. And so he's, with his brother, Luke Evans, who also returns and is also good now, but he's only in it for like three seconds. Like even once they board the plane, Luke Evans disappears in a way that suggests that maybe they only had him for a day of filming. <laughs> and so he couldn't actually take part in any of the action, but never mind, That's fine. But you get to watch Jason Statham shoot his way through this entire plane full of goons while holding a baby carriage in one hand with a little baby in it that's got headphones in it and so every time he kills three people he then has a little cute moment with the kid to check the Mm. kid's okay that's good fun it's not as good as it should be (laughs) because um if gary gray is directing it and not particularly well or it's the editor's fault i'm not sure um but it still has a problem where it, it can't show you everything it needs to in a shot and the cuts don't match up 
um, the pacing of the action sequences are still worse than they ought to be, but there are good ideas in here. And then Vin Diesel running through it in this nasty film where he's just talking to Charlize Theron and she never gets to leave the plane or do anything. What did you make of it? I, I feel I, I, your your thoughts are a mirror of mine, Graham. I do think <laughs> that we sort of reached um, at the pinnacle of this series with the sixth film, which was tantalizingly almost enjoyable. Um, but now it's sort of given way, uh, and outside of the, a few dotted scenes, which I really enjoy, the ones we've mentioned, it's sort of just baffling, self-serious peons to family and just adult CG set pieces that just don't, don't reach continuity and Roman shrieking, obviously. Um, uh, also, Vin Diesel's uh, Brazilian cop stopgap uh, wife, uh, who's mm. the mother of his child, is now murdered, uh, just fridged instantaneously to ensure that the suddenly alive again defrosted Michelle Rodriguez uh, can return. Um, and and Michelle Rodriguez is herself. Completely contempt to adopt her love rival's orphan. Those questions asked, because uh, that's just what women do, isn't it? Whatever a man wants them to do. <laughs> yep. um, but yeah, I do. I, I appreciate this film only for underwriting uh, the better projects that Helen Mirren and Charlize Theron will go, <laughs> go on to do. It's sort of like the National Lottery, you know, sort of attacks on the stupid, masquerading as harmless fun, which helps to fund better art projects. Um, in fact, one of the art projects that it funded is essentially Hobbs and Shaw, the spin-off. Um, before, the ninth before, film. Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. Before we move on to that, like, I, I do think, like, Michelle Rodriguez is a believable human being in these films, and I want to commend her for that because she has died and then come back and been evil and lost her memory and then switched to the good side but continued to have no memory and is now beginning to get her memories back and now has a child. And although that is completely absurd at every point, she is one of the few cast members who, when she emotes, I recognize what emotion it is she's trying to <laughs> convey. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And there are points in which, you know, her kind of, um, existential crisis or like her identity crisis so yeah i feel i feel actually empathy for her i like i i see what she is going through and that's that's rare within this series Uh, i also want to shout out the kind of climax of this movie you know i referenced before how it becomes a motif that the vin diesel is going to jump out of a car as it explodes you would think that this would be some sort of peak, but actually I think the next fan tops it. But in this one, uh, Cypher takes control of a nuclear submarine and is pursuing them across ice, pursuing the whole gang as they drive their cars. At this point, Vin Diesel, he's rejoined them. He's good again. And this sequence makes no fucking sense from a continuity point of view. Like the, the number of Russian military that are following them changes between shots so that there are always new Russian cars to explode the next time the nuclear sub pops up through the ice behind them. Like you will see that there are five cars chasing them. All five will be exploded by the nuclear submarine. And then in the next shot, there's just another six now for some reason. It's not clear where they're coming from. They're on a completely open plane. So it's not like they were just around the corner or anything like that. But this culminates with the nuclear submarine firing a heat-seeking missile at Dom's car, which he, you know, 
swerves to avoid, drives back towards the submarine, hits a ramp of broken ice, flips over the submarine. The missiles hit the submarine, which explodes, catching Dom's car on fire, and then seemingly igniting the nuclear warheads inside it, which explode in the parts of the submarine that are underneath the water. (laughs) And then, you know, as Dom's car flips through this basically nuclear explosion, he just leaps out the car door and lands on the ice and sort of rolls 15 feet away from the burning submarine. It is... A, a new level I don't want to say peak for the series but it feels like the absolutely absurd action has reached a height that surely it cannot top at this point until you see F9 we'll come back <laughs> to that later <laughs> yeah so before we uh, get to the, fi- the final uh, unfortunately it's not going to be the final installment in this season series but before we get to F9 the most recent uh, there is also the spin-off film uh, starring um Jason Statham and Dwayne Johnson as the the main heroes. Um, Hobbs and Shaw, or actually the Fast and Furious presents colon Hobbs and Shaw, <laughs> uh, directed by David Leach, who's done a series of uh, hyperviolent action films, including John Wick and Atomic Blonde, and Nobody was the most recent one. Um, I actually uh, genuinely straight up enjoyed this. Like I. I I think it's a good film. I, and I, all it took was a new writer, director, and cast. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think if this is the result of Vin Diesel and The Rock's Beef, then I say hooray for beef. I think it's a, it's a treat. Um, the, the, the plot, such as it is, is that uh, The Rock's jumbo-sized DEA agent and Statham's rogue, not rogue, former terrorist spy criminal hero... Um, <laughs> They team up together uh, with uh, Jason Statham's spy sister, the excellent Vanessa Kirby, um, who's also excellent in the Mission Impossible franchise. Uh, She's been framed here by uh, a super soldier terrorist in the shape of Idris Elba uh, for the murder of her own MI6 cell. Uh, During the period in which uh, she escapes from Idris Elba and he murders her MI6 cell, she also injects herself with a dose of super virus that she was trying to steal from Elba's organization. And what follows is a, a race against time to essentially find the means to extract the virus before it awakens within her and kills her and also all of humankind. Um, so they have gone, you know, they've gone the full way for the stakes <laughs> there. Um, and at the end, they end up in Samoa uh, for a tower defense sequence. Uh, and it's a, it's, it's a total unabashed cartoon. I think it's really fun. I agree, actually. I So I cheated when we were watching these films back because after watching, I think it was Fast 6, I wanted to die. And so I skipped <laughs> ahead a little bit and watched Hobbs and Shaw because I'd heard it was better and it was right. And I do think these films make a pretty good case for the validity of movie stars and the exorbitant <laughs> fees that they demand. Um, because I think... Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham and Idris Elba and Vanessa Kirby and mm-hmm. Fair are just have a watchable quality, which oh, most yeah. of the cast of the main series films just lack. Um, and the script is a lot lighter and popular. Uh, it's it's actually you mentioned that it's um, by a whole new writer. It's supposedly not. <laughs> it's supposedly like one of the screenplay credits is Chris Morgan, who wrote most of the other films yeah it's it's also co- co-credited to drew pierce who was co-writer on iron man 3 mm-hmm. and so like he's he's got 
you know, bit of credibility. But there's the no way though that this film was not script doctored by Rob Delaney, who also has a has a cameo role in it, as does Ryan Reynolds. Um, and but you can just like everything that all oh, the the whole bickering between the two leads in this film um, has the 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 petulant insult craft of Rob Delaney. There's there's no way that he didn't have a bigger hand in this film. I would say. I mean, it's not quite as it doesn't quite always land because I think uh, in some of its broader physical comedy is a bit strained, and I don't think that the two leads always quite manage to negotiate the subtleties of that kind of banter because it's in the in the way it's scripted, you can tell that it's meant to move from like these devastatingly caustic uh, jibes to just sort of resorting ultimately to spluttering juvenile flailing. Um, and the arguments are meant to get more desperate and like self-defeating, but that doesn't, that doesn't quite percolate down to the notes that Johnson and Statham have received because they just deliver all of the sort of dud jibes with the same sort of unabashed confidence <laughs> as any other line, but it still manages to be a, a, a really funny film, I think with a lot of good one-liners and, uh, you know, great cast Idris like you say they the, every single cast member here would in the main franchise eclipse every other actor <laughs> like Idris Elba is just great as a, a snarling supervillain Eddie Marson's in it attempting to do a Russian accent <laughs> by way of literally other every nation around the world um <laughs> Vanessa Kirby is just a, a really great and adaptable actress and she has like the charisma to go toe-to-toe with even the rock's ego I think so it's it's a good it's a good match and like, I, I, you know, you know, you might not even notice this achievement in any other film, but just the composition of the film with its flashbacks and intercutting, it shows like, like a wit and a verve that is just completely absent from the main franchise, uh, which, <laughs> which my notes here describe as a bromidic dirge. So, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I think it helps. Like the verve that you're talking about does help with with Ryan Reynolds and also Kevin Hart delivering mm. a lot of the exposition in uncredited cameos. Like I saw the film get criticism because The Rock clearly has a massive ego and these are characters that just show up and fawn over The Rock and tell The Rock how great he is. <laughs> like Ryan Reynolds is just in love with The Rock. Kevin Hart meets them on a plane and immediately wants to join the gang because he loves them so much. Um, and so I can see how that would be grating to some people. But compared to the interminably long, dull, gross <laughs> exposition scenes in most of the other films, like you get the impression in F, Eight, for example, that they really want Charlie's Theron to be like this evil philosophical mastermind. Like they want her to be the kind of Bond villain they can bring back, and audiences immediately are like electrified. Oh, how is she going to interact? But none of those scenes land. <laughs> Whereas the kind of equivalent expositional scenes in this, or like longer conversational scenes, even with Kevin Hart and Ryan Reynolds, are just poppy and fun, mm-hmm. such that I would be much more compelled to see these actors come back inside a glass box <laughs> for no apparent reason <laughs> in a future film in the series. Yeah, um, I, I, it, I like that it largely abandons cars as the principal vector yeah. for action as well. I think that seems really important. Um, and it uses edits to explain action rather than obscure it you know <laughs> uh yeah that seems just to be the hallmark of a competent director which uh, i guess the series is not thus far seen 
That um, was the other thing I wanted to flag is, yeah, like the, the climactic action sequence where they go to Samoa, which again is presumably a thing that The Rock <laughs> demanded in his contract. Um, it, it benefits a lot by the fact that it's on a human scale. Mm. Like the, the, they're not flipping cars over over nuclear submarines as they explode. In fact, vehicles <laughs> don't really play much of a part at all. In it. In the climax, I do think they 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 do... Uh, eject a car into a helicopter, don't they? I think at some point. Yeah, um, well, that's small potatoes <laughs> compared. To... <laughs> yeah, they don't black backflip through a nuclear explosion at any point. But... Yeah, and up even until though that this point... is perhaps the most sci-fi of all the films, in that you know Idris Elba is is literally a, a Superman in this. Yeah, he's got he's got the crisis <clears throat> nanosuits, literally. <laughs> like he has a magic suit that makes him extra strong, and he can run really fast. And he's also got a really cool bike. <laughs> <laughs> so there are there are some some vehicular things. He's got like a remote control bike. He can kind of summon summon to him like a like a horse in Skyrim. Shall we finish it? Shall we do <laughs> the tenth film in the sequence? F nine. Yes, although I'm reminded, I think we missed an action sequence I wanted to shout out. Because oh, yeah. in one of the previous rounds, I can't remember if it's F8 or F7, they drive a sports car between several skyscrapers in, in Dubai. Uh, yeah, that's the one where Roman sings, I believe. I can't remember which film that is. That would be F7. I thought it was F7, and I, but I didn't say it at the time because I thought I must have got modded up, but <laughs> nope, it was F7. That's a cool action sequence. That almost works for me. Even the gravity and physics of it almost worked for me. Um, so there we go. One nice thing <laughs> in these 10 films. On to F9. Um, I watched this on Monday. When did you see it? Uh, I think the same day, yeah. So this is... Picking up where F8 left off, Letty and Dom are once again in hiding, only now they've got a kid. The kid is a toddler. Um, they uh, pretty early on meet up with the rest of the squad, the rest of the old crew who try to draw them back into a life of crime because Mr. Nobody, Kurt Russell, his plane has gone down somewhere in South America and they're being drafted in to go go find him. They were sent a message um, that was sent only to them. Uh, Dom doesn't want to go initially because he doesn't want to leave his kids. You know, maybe he's changed. But Letty decides that she's going to go because she doesn't like that they're hiding. Um, uh, Dom pretty quickly changes his mind. And then that reluctance he had to take part or any kind of like emotional through line about his responsibility to his child, now he's a parent, it's just not explored at all over the rest of the film. Instead, it's just like almost note for note the same kind of capering sci-fi uh, spy film as the previous one, as F.A. is. Like beat for beat or scene for scene, there is a lot of repetition in this movie that I think uh, makes it e even worse than what was already pretty light, silly fair. So... This time around, the villain is... <laughs> John Cena? John Cena, that's his name. The villain is John Cena, who it turns out is Dom's brother, uh, as we are told through a series of flashbacks. Um, which they is, did, oh, again... Man, the, number of, the number of lampshades they have to hang on the fact <laughs> that they don't look alike is pretty amazing. It's yeah, a, a genetically very dissimilar man. And... <laughs> and <laughs> 
I think he's described uh, by Roman as uh, driving literally like a bat out of hell. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Brilliant. <laughs> and like there, there were references to Dom's past in the previous films. Like he does tell a story at one point to someone in one of the early films about his dad dying in a car race and Dom beating the crap out of the driver he held responsible and going to prison for it. In that anecdote, he doesn't mention a brother. At no point is a brother mentioned. Um, but, you know, I guess if you're going to retcon people back alive, then as they have done with Letty, then it's okay. Um, and as they do with Han in this film. So we've oh, caught yeah. up and we've surpassed the Tokyo Drift timeline. Uh, and now we discover that not only was it retconned so that Jason Statham was the person responsible for killing Han, was now being retconned so that Han was, it seems like, actually a hologram <laughs> uh, <laughs> created by Mr. Nobody because you see Mr. Nobody and Han on a room, like, looking out over the crash. <laughs> uh, and you see Han, like, vanish in a second from the vehicle. So like, it seems like it's just technical wizardry and I guess the car was remote controlled. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I think it's really important. They brought Han back, you know, the guy whose personality is he eats crisps. I think he's, he's really sorely missing from the franchise. Well, it's important to remember that this is the directorial return of Justin Lin back to the series. Mm. And so of course he had to bring his friend along with him and find some reason for his friend to still be in it. Couldn't set it as a prequel anymore because they'd already done the Han Revenge movie. Um, so this time, John Cena is the bad guy, but he's also working for this like Russian billionaire who is like poorly developed. Sorry, I, I'm not sure where he's from. I think it's, it might be Georgia, actually. Is it because okay. they're in Tbilisi at some point? But apologies, this 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 Georgian billionaire who is the. It seems like the son of, is it the prime minister or something like that? And mm. so he has issues and wants more power and respect, but to be honest, it's never really developed. And John Cena's motivation for any of the things he's doing at this point are not well developed beyond the fact that he doesn't like that he's had to live in Dom's shadow. And Dom holds him responsible for the death of their father and asked him to leave town, I guess, 20 years ago. Twenty years later, he's 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 decided that the way to deal with it is, you know, being like an evil spy guy. Um, I mean, like he does say, like he's been working and doing missions for Mister Nobody for most of that time. I'm still not entirely clear why he ultimately turns evil, but also back. Sorry, go on. Well, there's a suggestion that he is the rogue agent and not uh, Luke. Evans in the previous film to which the rogueness was being referred if that makes any sense anyway I don't know it's it's a terrible retcon it doesn't matter <laughs> I mean look Evans was also actually evil though <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so I know <laughs> um also returning is Cypher played by Charlize Theron she's inside a glass box now why don't know <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, I both don't know why she's in this movie particularly. Like, they didn't establish her as an interesting enough villain or character in the last film. 
that, to justify her survival and returning. It's also not clear why the baddies that are kind of using her or keeping her inside a glass box. Well, like, she needs they, her, her entire point to this. Uh, her t- entire the point of her in, her presence in this film is though at some point she can take over the role of the bad guy, allowing John Cena to have reconciliation with dom because that is that is so inevitable from the second you hear that dom's brother is out there causing mayhem you know oh well he's going to become a good guy by the end of this film that's just that's happened to the rock it's happened to jason statham it's happened even to luke evans it's it's gonna happen again with john cena i have to give it credit though for some of the some of the way that it sort of uses the past it flashes back a lot to Dom's childhood uh, and the uh, the fateful car crash and the events surrounding it, and like <laughs> the last few films have strayed so so far from uh, drag racing, thank God, and also the low level LA criminality. I mean, the crew are now just this globe trotting gang of CIA backed vigilantes, basically, who take on entire armies. Um, I do think that it helps to sort of ground it in a weird way even though i'm not at all affectionate towards the series past like it does find some and i find drag racing to be shit and extraordinarily boring but it does find this sort of like connective thread back to the series origins um which uh, i think was probably probably a worthwhile endeavor but then there are so many flashbacks not just about dom's brother but like about what han was doing since his death and you know uh there's just a huge amount of exposition to kind of wedge him back into it. It's it's just, I mean, it, it's so retconny, but it's it, 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 it instead of just breezing past this stuff, which would be you know borderline acceptable, it just fruitlessly labors to explain stuff. And there's so much needless exposition. And just stop these characters talking, please. You just, <laughs> there's so much self-important whiffle about family. And at one point, Dom pulls down a concrete building with his bare hands, and then has an out-of-body <laughs> experience in the in a plunge pool. <laughs> it's just you don't need any of that stuff. You really don't. Just womp men, womp men, real good. That's what did it you, needs. Did you understand why Dom did that? Like, no, they, they <laughs> like they. He's meant to be buying time for the others to escape, but then Letty stays uh, like four feet away for the entire duration <laughs> of that sequence. Yeah, and they'd kind of already, it seemed like, one, because they used the giant electromagnets. We playing with magnets now, as Roman says in the trailer. Um, <laughs> uh, although I think that line's actually not in the final film. Um, they yeah, used the giant, remember, yeah. they'd used the giant magnets uh, in order to pull the guns out of all the bad guys' hands. And then, like, when Dom wakes up after, like, the, his self-sacrificial fight where he tells Letty to tell their kid that he he loves her uh you know and, and destroys a fucking concrete walkway and falls into the plunge pool like when he wakes up Letty's just there and all the rest of the gang are still just there like none of them were escaped they just defeated the bad guys they're still in the same place I don't understand like why did he stay behind <laughs> it's not like the staging of it makes no sense as an action sequence um, um, yeah, I, like- I mean, there's there's quite a lot of that, isn't there? I mean, <laughs> some of it's some of it's fun in the kind of ridiculous, you know, once per film, uh, you know, uh, get out of jail free card sort of nonsense. There's one point where Dom drives a car off a cliff quite early on, and he catches a steel wire around his wheel axle and swings the entire car like Tarzan. <laughs> 
Um, but then there's the part with the electromagnets, which is uh, they 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 manage to steal these electromagnets and arm their cars with them so that they can sort of manipulate the vehicles that are pursuing them. And it's a really it's a it's a cool concept, and I think it's a fun way to sort of like a, approach the construction of like an action action spectacle to to build it around a gimmick. But it's just there's they just don't care about using it consistently. So the gimmick becomes meaningless. It's just meaningless magic, you know? And I don't feel like these films ever set out to solve solve the problems that they that would be interesting, that would make the action film, you know, the action sequences feel like they had a point. I don't, I don't, I don't think they even understand what a magnet is, <laughs> you know? I don't, they don't even understand percentages. Like at one point, they, they're trying to stop this upload, this critical upload. And uh, it reaches 100% before they stop it. And then they stop it. And everybody's like, yeah, we did it. And I mean, like, no, that's, no you did. That's, that's what 100% needs. <laughs> it got all the way there. You didn't stop it. It's also just beat by beat following the steps of F8, though. So, like, mm. all the magnet stuff and those action sequences are happening at the same, like, I, like within minutes, I would imagine, of the same moments in F8 where they have the ability to remote control cars. And so like in F8, you get this kind of like, it's like one of those combined track mania replays. If you've ever seen that, Mm. where they have like hundreds of vehicles flowing through the streets in a river or falling out of buildings. And like, they obviously liked that and thought that was a cool thing. And so they needed a new cool thing for the action sequences in this one and so their idea was magnets and like even the expositional scenes or like the the character scenes (laughs) such as they are are just following the exact same pattern of like roman and tej who's ludicrous's character if i remembered his name sitting talking to the new lady hacker that joined them a couple of movies ago and like bickering and hitting on her and she being exasperated and walking away. Like we've seen that same scene play out like six times now across the last two or three films. And like, there's been no character development. And in this one, there's not even a hint of a joke. Like in the previous films, there was at least an attempt at a joke, like something that you're like, okay, that had like a setup and punchline structure. I understand that was supposed to be your joke. It's not funny. But well done, you tried. Whereas in F9, I feel like there's not even the setup and punchline. They, it feels like someone copy pasted the script from F8 and then rewrote the words in for each line to mimic what the last one was doing mm. without quite ever understanding or like grappling with the underlying character motivation or plot motivation or anything. It's really odd. Mm. I'd say these, the one good thing about uh, the setting of stunts in this film, or rather just physical space, is that uh, the, the previous films just don't care about physical space or very rarely care about it. And in this installment, the budget has now grown sufficiently large that they can hire like a team of thousands of artists to CG composite landscapes together. Uh, and in the in in the, one of the opening sequences, I forget where it is. I think it's in South America somewhere. You get like maybe six different, quite grand, establishing shots to show you this uh, environment of all the cars coming into this abandoned base. And it doesn't make anything less stupid, <laughs> but it does mean that you can at least see where everything is meant to be. But then it sort of undermines this by doing the same thing it's always done, which is to cut far too much. There's like a sequence in which uh, John Cena is on a zip line. It takes him five minutes 
or film time to get down that zip line because it keeps them cutting away to a fist fight in a van. And like <laughs> both of those scenes would be better if not intertwined. Like, I mean, I, I wonder if the intercutting was used to disguise the fact that the, that, uh, Vin Diesel chasing, uh, the zip lining, uh, Sainer around Edinburgh, uh, didn't turn out to be a particularly coherent concept by itself. And maybe they used the intercutting to disguise that, but it's, it's just, I, it, it may, me, makes everything, it makes your investment sort of get drained in each of the individual sequences by, by just, you lose sense of where you are in the, in the fight or in the chase. I feel like the intercutting in that sequence might have been there to disguise the fact that Vin Diesel has obviously never been to Edinburgh in his entire life. <laughs> like there are establishing shots of John Cena where he seems to be legitimately standing on a rooftop in Edinburgh, but there is no point in that sequence in which it's not absolutely clear that Vin Diesel and his Dodge Charger haven't been composited into the Edinburgh streets after the fact. Like he looks really out of place. And then mm. during the, a lot of the chase sequences, he looks really obviously CG. And so does John Cena because they maybe couldn't get permission to like leap between moving vehicles or yeah. maybe COVID was in effect when they were filming those parts. And so they couldn't do it for that reason. The C use of CG for actual replacing actors in this film is much higher than in the previous films. Like in the previous films, you've always had scenes where characters as, you, as we've discussed, land on bonnets or climb between cars or climbing through windows of moving cars and that sort of stuff. A lot of the time that's actually been done practically. You know, set a bunch of vehicles in motion, have them drive really slow. Um, and a, an actor who's like wired on or whatever moves between them. But here you get weird, rubbery, slightly missized John Cena climbing in through a car door at one point and lots of shots where Vin Diesel looks larger than he does in the scenes where he's his actual self and not a CG replacement. I mean... The action sequences have never been believable because the physics don't make any sense and the editing is terrible, but it's all the worse for the fact that they just keep turning into like bad rubbery CG men. Mm. Yeah, there's one point in which uh, Dom crashes into another car, flipping it over so that falling John Cena can bounce off its side as it crashes and then in bouncing <laughs> land on the bonnet of another car and save him. Yep. <laughs> he also at one point is in a car... A a long truck on its side sliding down a mountain and he redirects the direction of the truck using a grenade explosion. <laughs> um, uh, which I guess like culminates in, well, first of all, before I say this, I want to say I keep bringing up Ham and like the way he shoehorned in. I actually don't mind that because although his one character thing is that he needs crisps, I quite like the actor. I do find him a little bit charming, and so like that he's back, I'm happy with. And I how do you feel talk... about the return of uh, of Sean from uh, Tokyo Drift? Um, well, I'll come on to that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> less good, less good about that. <laughs> but I don't mind the stuff about Han, where he has been in Tokyo and drafted by Mister Nobody and become an agent for him. For some reason, never telling his friends who also work for Mr. Nobody that he's still alive and has basically got a kind of surrogate daughter who is now a ninja. <laughs> he's, I mean, he seems to find her when she's a living. Now he's 
now she's clearly in her late teens, I guess. I still don't understand the chronology or timeline of these films, but whatever. I don't mind all that stuff. Like, that's quite fun. Uh, I, yeah, I like a lot less the return of, of Sean from Tokyo Drift, who returns with, I think, the same sidekicks as those movies who were helping him work on cars back then, where now they seem to be working for the military, I guess. I mean, it seems like a pretty stunning indictment of the US military that they have hired these people. But they're, they're, they're introduced on a military base where they're strapping rockets to the roofs of cars and trying to drive faster than jet planes that are taking off from the same military base. Roman and Tej go see them for reasons I don't fully understand because they need to be hooked up with some other vehicle or something. But we get a nice sequence of their rocket car, which is like a Pontiac or something like that, driving propelled by a giant rocket, seemingly successfully, and then exploding. And I thought this was a precursor to some sort of sequence where they would have to drive over a long distance extremely quickly, and so they would use a rocket strapped to the roof of a car in order to do this. But alas, no, it turns out to be much stupider than this. <laughs> so much so that when I was telling a friend that we were doing this, that we were watching all of these Fast and the Furious films, and I was describing the nuclear submarine sequence, I joked that the only thing stupider that they could do would be going to space. <laughs> oh, dear. Thinking that, well, you know, that's, that's a ludicrous... <laughs> Not the actor, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a stupid idea. They're, you know, they're not going to go. And I joked, you know, about them docking with the International Space Station. <laughs> so it turns out in this film, that's what they do. Um, the upload that you refer to, I believe, is them uploading something to a satellite. And so they're going to go to try and fry the satellite using these magnets, which they have strapped to a Ford Pontiac along with a rocket. And they strap the whole thing to the roof of a plane, fly the plane into the air and then launch the rockets and Tej and Roman go to space, literally outer space in their car. Like that mannequin that Elon Musk placed inside his Tesla when he launched it into space. Um, and they, you know, have little air boosters that I guess they also put on the car so they can redirect its momentum in space. <laughs> and they fly it over to uh, to the satellite that they're trying to destroy, discover that they can't use the magnets because they've been fried, and so they just drive straight through the satellite, which explodes. And then they drive on to the International Space Station and wave, <laughs> uh, wave to the Russian astronauts inside, who presumably, I suppose, let them in, and uh, they they fly back on a on a, on the next shuttle, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I can't. I I feel like no one's going to believe us <laughs> that this is what happens in this film. Uh, yeah, I just also, also don't know what we're meant to feel about that sequence. <laughs> like it's, uh, I mean, it's obviously, it's obviously very silly, but um, uh, but also I just don't care. Like I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it it feels like it's at the one time reaching for a different register of silliness. Like it's gone, it's gone full Moonraker at this point. But at the same time, 
it's it, it also just doesn't feel like it's given itself over to comedy in any way it, there's still there's still uh, the two characters in the car in the space car are still sort of mulling over their, their their sense of destiny and their mortality and stuff and you know they don't mention family but it's still in that kind of slightly somber self-exploratory tone and it's just completely unwarranted by the situation. There doesn't seem to be any reason for them to have done any of this either. I mean, couldn't they've? I, surely they could have found a different way of approaching this problem. <laughs> well, I don't fully understand why they do it either, but it seems to be why it works, even though they fail to stop the upload in time. The upload hits hundred percent, but they still destroy the satellite, so it's okay. So I. I, f- I feel like I miss a lot of the exposition in these films because it's delivered in such a dull way, often while simultaneously advertising Corona really explicitly <laughs> for character dialogue. Um, and so maybe I just missed a line that explained it, but mm. it seemed like almost it was a plan B. Like, you guys try to stop the upload down here and we will go to space. <laughs> um, as you say, it doesn't... Like the the register of it doesn't fit. It's also just this is the point where I'm like, would I enjoy this if I had not watched the first five films? Because I, as I said at the beginning, I like dumb action fare. I don't need things to make sense. I'm okay with spectacle. I'm okay with CGI spectacle. I don't like there is. If you would describe this film to people, or F8, or to some extent F7 and F6, they go, oh, it sounds kind of fun. Like, you know, if you just describe the plot <laughs> without explaining the reasons what, why it's terrible or the characters are awful, then it just sounds kind of fun. And I wonder if I would enjoy this film more if it wasn't Roman Pierce <laughs> going to space. <laughs> if I hadn't watched the first five films and sat through so much dullard behavior and misogyny and hateful commercial placement of vehicles and like pornographic shots of rims. Um, would I have more fondness for this? Would I like accept the movie on its own terms rather than feeling like just total derision for everyone involved? What do you think? <laughs> I don't think so because I mean I, I think the proof of that is the fact that it was possible for for me to whole, wholly enjoy Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, but it doesn't have the cast. That's the thing. It's got like the characters that they introduced after film five, and so they're like unburdened from a lot of that baggage, and they're the movie stars that are charismatic enough that they're, they're you know that you you kind of follow along with them. Yeah, but I think there's also uh, just a, a gulf of quality filmmaking there, right? As well as as well as the change of cast, it isn't it, the thing that holds the the fast franchise back from from for me is is not simply the people they've got to play these characters, but the entire operation itself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just, I, I agree with that. I also, and I, I agree that this is like a bad example of a dumb action movie, but I feel like I've watched other bad examples of dumb action movies and still come away going, eh, mm. you know, on a, on a certain level, it's satisfied. Whereas these movies, I find them almost entirely despicable. Yeah. 
Yeah, these are these are films uh, for people who listen to music through their phone speaker on public transport. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I feel. Uh... I genuinely feel like I've wounded my soul by watching these <laughs> films. I'm, I'm glad that you've also <laughs> committed this act of self harm. How so? Importantly, how do you rank them? Oh, that's best, best to worst. Hmm. Fine, you wanna, I've, I've got a list. I've got a list. Right do you want to? Do you want to go first? Sure. I think obviously Hobbs and Shaw is way easily the best. Then I would say this: the main series peak was uh, number six. Um, what happens in number six? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's. I think that's the one with. Okay, that's the one with Luke Evans as as the villain. Um. I think then yeah. I then I'd probably I, I might put F9 in there I mean it's not it's not a good film I'm mean, like all of these films from this point on are worse than Mission Impossible 2 <laughs> I would say uh so which uh, Mission Impossible 2 not only the worst film of the Mission Impossible franchise but also a despicable film <laughs> um uh, yeah F, F9 is just kind of charmless I, I, I charmless mush I, I then I put F8 then F7 then F5, then F4. I mean, it's quite clearly chronological. But then I'd put probably F2, F1, and then finally the worst of the worst is Tokyo Drift, F3. See, it's interesting that you thought the first film was worse than the second film. It's quite close, I would say. It's quite close. I mean, I'd give the first film merit for being fresher. In that it's it's you know the first of something, but I think the second film there is there. I mean, just just in terms of it uh, upgrading the way that it approaches shooting car chases, like there is there is some minor advancement in the way that it approaches putting together its action sequences. Otherwise, I mean, we're talking these these are all meritless films that deserve to be <laughs> erased from history. So it's, it's you know can't put that much between them. Okay, so I I agree that Hobbs and Shaw is the best, like just by far. <laughs> uh, and then I would put Seven as the next one, which is the first one with Statham, where he's mm. the villain, and I'm pretty sure that's the one with uh, Abu Dhabi jumping between skyscrapers in a vehicle, then six, then eight, then nine, then five, four, then one, then two, then three. So we're agreed that three is the worst. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, like otherwise the the places where we disagree on the exact order, it doesn't matter (laughs) because these are all like zero out of 10 films. It's like, (laughs) It's a rounding error that, um, <laughs> that we can even tell them apart. I think that's it, isn't it? Have we learned anything from doing this, uh, doing whatever we did? Not to do this? Yeah. I feel like there's so many, so many terrible things in these films that we've, we've had to skip over. Like there's an, an entire gross sidekick character in the first two films that we didn't even mention at all. Like who's part of like Dom's crew in the first film. Uh, and 
you know, is like constantly fighting with Paul Walker's character because he wants to be with Mia and other stuff. We didn't mention it, but he's oh, yeah, he's yeah. awful. He's like Roman before Roman, but by the time you're at film six, you don't forget. You've completely forgotten that he ever existed, even though he was actually in like two or three of the movies. Um, we haven't talked about the weirdness of uh, Dominic Toretto naming his kid Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh man, like, could you, oh, I wanted to ask you, could you describe Mia <laughs> to me, her personality? What's her personality? Her personality is sister. <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. Like she comes back, they bring her back after having been written out in F7, like, they bring her back for F9 and it's just like, Why? <laughs> I I guess she's there to sell the sibling drama. Yeah, that makes more. I mean, that that kind of works. I mean, although she doesn't actually. I mean, like she's completely dismissed. John Cena turns up, and having captured the entire crew, he's just like, "Oh, sorry, Mia." And like, <laughs> yeah, you just cuddle at the end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like he, despite her being his sister, he only has a relationship with his brother, good or bad. And yeah. whatever he feels for his sister is just an adjunct to that. And she is an adjunct uh, to the entire film. Yeah, Mia is like instantly put on a plane and sent to Tokyo with Letty to go eventually track down Han. But it's, I feel like you could do that with a lot of these characters. Like mm. Even after nine films, I feel like most of them don't have any personality. Even the ones you like, you only like because of the actor or because of a very brief affectation, like they eat a lot of crisps. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where where I'm at after 10 films of this. Um, they've already announced that they're going to make, I think, at least one more, possibly two more two, of these. Two, I think, yeah. There's yeah. an all-female-led all uh, film. Is there? Yeah, I wonder. And apparently, Charlize Theron is going to come back for that. Whether she's being retconned into surviving the ending of F nine, or whether this is going to be another prequel, I don't know. I wonder she, if they're she, going to. She lives at the oh, end yes, of F nine. Oh, yes, she does. Sorry, yeah, it's she's, a fake out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. She's piloting a drone, and so they make a point of showing you her walking away. Oh, yes. Good point. Good point. I wonder if they'll um, they will resurrect Gal Gadot as well. <laughs> Why not? You know? I mean, when she died. Um, you never saw, and no one ever seemed to go check for no. a body, and there was no <laughs> funeral or anything like that. Like there was nothing. Mm. It was clearly set up in a way that she could could come back at any point. Um, presumably to be the mother to Han's new adopted ninja teenager daughter. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So what I wanted to ask is, will you watch them? Like, we've technically completed <laughs> Fast and the Furious now. When there's F10, will you watch it? Oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm definitely I'm, I'm definitely done. I mean, I was done uh, after F8, actually. Uh, but then um, the, the lure of doing this as a podcast brought me back. But I, without, uh, without some other reason, <laughs> I don't think I could, ever, I could ever return to this sequence. <laughs> See, I will watch it now. Oh, no. <laughs> that is it for the rest of my life. 
Like I, I remember thinking my friends at, at secondary school were idiots when we were 16 and they said that the original Fast and the Furious was their favorite movie because I was a total snob. And I eventually got over my snobbery and now I've discovered that I am right, <laughs> that I was right <laughs> to be a snob. Um, but now, now, now I've watched 10 of these films. I may as well, <laughs> anytime there's a new one, hmm. watch it. Uh, and I enjoy hating it. I will hate watch these films until I die. I'll enjoy watching a Hobbs and Shaw sequel if one comes about. I believe there is one planned. Yeah, I believe so. Well, that's it. I think uh, I think we've done our duty here. I'm sorry to you, Graham, and to everybody else involved. Uh, I'm deeply, deeply ashamed of what we've perpetrated here today. And uh, future lock-ins probably won't be about the worst film franchise of all time. Uh, we'll pick better subjects. It's worth noting uh, that uh, backers on our Patreon will not be charged for these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. Don't write any complain. Uh, but if you did want to uh, back us for some reason uh, for the main um, gaming podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash crowbar. Um, and you can find uh, other nonsense by us on YouTube, youtube.com slash crowbar. Uh, you can tweet us at Creighton Crowbar and you can join our lovely Discord community uh, via the link on our website, which is sensibly enough CreightonCrowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been too Graham, too fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Listen,